In today's episode, we discuss the new USCIS notice to appear policy changes. Erickson Immigration Attorney Lisa La Webbeck provides a brief overview of the function of a notice to appear and the recent changes that now affect when it can be issued. At the 3.40 minute mark, the discussion is handed over to Lisa Lott and fellow attorney Hippa Anver for a one-on-one Q&A session. Among many things, they discuss the possible impact on USCIS and the companies who employ foreign nationals. For all those up to date on the basics, you can skip ahead to listen to the expert attorney analysis. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. A notice to appear is the immigration equivalent of a warrant for arrest. So it's the document issued by the immigration authorities that says you're out of status, you are or you have violated your status for some reason or you are for some other reason present in the United States and you're not supposed to be. So Mm -hmm. we are going to start the process of having you return to your home country or country of last residence. Okay. There have been recent policy changes. Can yeah. you tell us about those changes and the implications? We've seen two. We've seen one on uh, July 13th and one, I think, June 28th, and they're overlapping. The one that was issued in June was regarding NTAs, but I want to talk about second because okay. actually there was a, the July 13th policy memo that was issued regarding requests for evidence and notices to appear kind of comes earlier in the process. When a case is filed with the USCIS, say an H-1B petition, goes through a couple of steps. First thing, goes to a processing center where they check for basic, are all the pages there, are all the documents there, and they, as importantly, the check's there. That's where they take the checks. Very important. These are sometimes yes. called uh, lock boxes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then it goes from the lockbox to uh, adjudicator. The adjudicator will then, or USCIS officer, the adjudicator will then take a look at it when they're this case gets to the top of their pile, say, okay, does this meet basic eligibility requirements? If this is a family petition that requires a marriage, that's based on a marriage, is the marriage certificate there? Under the old policy, if that marriage certificate wasn't there, if those basic essential documents, say for uh, H-1B, if the LCA wasn't there, USCIS would request that. They would issue an RFP for those basic initial documents. The policy change here is that rather than... uh, issuing an RFE, they're just going to straight up deny it or issue wow. okay. uh, denial. That's mm-hmm. that's the policy shift we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the old policy was that they will issue, USCIS would issue uh, RFE whenever there was a chance that the evidence could be provided by the petitioner or by the applicant and that they would only go straight to a denial where there was either a statutory reason, like the, someone was seeking a benefit that wasn't even an option, say, filing a petition for their auntie. Well, there's yeah. no category for aunties. <laughs> they have full discretion Full now. discretion to deny right. based on lack of initial evidence. That's you can change. always refile. Correct. Right? Uh, that's the change. The change with NTAs is that before there was a prioritization, they would issue notices to appear and start removal proceedings if there was evidence of misrep and misrepresentations of lying, evidence mm-hmm. of criminal activity. Now they're going to issue NTAs even when someone is just out of status and there's no other aggravating factors. That's the change. What's your essential concern here? What, what do you think is the primary worry of our employers and our, our clients? So my concern is based on what we see on a daily basis because obviously we represent companies that sponsor foreign nationals. So here's kind of like an everyday scenario that I'm worried about. 
you've got a foreign national for whom we file an H-1B extension, Mm -hmm. right? Due to lengthy adjudication times, let's just say, for example, the um, extension is still pending when the foreign national's um, current I-797 expires. Okay. Okay? Now, what would that normally look like? I mean, that would basically be a foreign national working pursuant to the 240-day rule, right, with Mm -hmm. a timely filed extension. Now, say, for example, the pending extension turns out to be denied, at mm-hmm. the end of you know at the end of the lengthy adjudication time well what would have been our standard advice you can step out and step back in mm-hmm. based on you know you're refiling in your grace, a, you're in your grace period yeah you're in your you're you're in your 60 day grace period we can refile or you know let's add another layer to this hypothetical let's say for example this is a foreign national that we've been working with who just finds out that he's been laid off mm-hmm. the bottom line is that at this point we're advising our clients about their 60 day grace period mm-hmm. right meaning that they're still um, authorized to remain here in the United States look for either a different employer, possibly change status, or step out and step back in. Mm -hmm. You know, all of a sudden now, you have this risk of, you know, USCIS issuing a notice to appear. Mm -hmm. What does that do to the foreign national's ability to step out and step back in? I mean, at at, at the end of the day, if you have a notice to appear issued in your immigration case, aren't you landlocked at that point? You you aren't required to stay in, but our advice would be that you resolve that NTA before leaving the country. Because if the NTA is outstanding, that means that there is some kind of removal proceedings in process, and any type of departure during that time could be seen as a voluntary departure. Now, that doesn't necessarily automatically impose bars. It doesn't necessarily automatically mean that you can't return, but it, it makes it a little bit more complicated. So in general, our advice would likely be, and of course, it's going to be very on a case-by-case scenario. Our advice would likely be that we resolve the NTA before the employee takes any proactive steps to either depart or to seek other status. We can file a new petition during that time while the NTA is pending. It doesn't prevent any employer from filing a new petition, but it does mean that USCIS no longer has jurisdiction over that individual. With the NTA, basically the ball of this person's future is shifted from control by USCIS over to the Executive Office of Immigration Review. So we would advise that we resolve that outstanding issue with the Department of Justice, with EOIR, get the ball handed back to USCIS so that USCIS can adjudicate, say, a pending petition, which we have since filed. The problem is that's going to be a lengthy process. That's going to take potentially a year or more. Uh, It's going to, and during that time, the employee will not be able to work. Uh, The employee will not be able to travel, or we would advise against travel. And, uh, they would not be able to seek to change their status to, to another status. So, for example, if they get married in the interim, they would not. They would be able to file a green card petition based on that marriage, but it wouldn't be able to be adjudicated because USCIS does not have control yet. We'd have to deal with the jurisdictional issues first. So it doesn't make it impossible, but it does make it time-consuming and complex. It adds a new layer of complexity. What I want to emphasize, though, is that what we're seeing now isn't something that USCIS couldn't do before. USCIS could. USCIS could issue NTAs when someone fell out of status. When I was an immigration officer, I regularly issued NTAs for people who, for example, had not appeared for their interview. 
if you don't appear for your interview, it was called two bites of the apple. You get one try. We'll, we'll reschedule it once. If you don't appear for the second one, we deny the petition. If there's no underlying status, if there's no non-immigrant status for you to fall back on, and often that was looking at green card applications. So at that point, we deny the case, issue an NTA, and shift the ball over to the court. And if you want to figure out anything, if you want to get status, fine, take it up with the court. So what we're seeing with these memos that were released last week under this administration is saying that rather than just issuing NTAs where there is a clear issue of misrepresentation or there's someone with a criminal record, we're going to issue NTAs whenever someone falls out of status. So I, I, one of the things that's concerning to me, and I understand, you know, you make a very valid point about the fact that this is not necessarily new. It's just that now it's being applied, mm -hmm. right? My concern is, well, what does that application look like in reality? So for example, I'm imagining, based on my very limited experience in removal proceedings, uh -huh. that you know, first you've got a series of master calendar hearings, and then you've got the individual hearing, which is basically the equivalent to a substantive trial, so to speak, in front of an immigration judge. Correct. So you've got the immigration attorney who is basically seeking, um, what would it be, a continuance of the ultimate individual hearing date on the grounds that there is a second H-1B extension that has been refiled, right? The immigration judge is not going to cancel removal proceedings unless the immigration judge sees that that second application in front of USCIS has been positively adjudicated. At least the underlying petition, if not the, the change of status part, right? The exactly, yeah. right? And now you've got basically this foreign nationals case being dragged on in immigration court before this change, it would have been just a very kind of standard, straightforward H-1B extension filing. I think what would end up happening is the immigration attorney would seek cancellation of removal based on a approved H-1B. You wouldn't see cancellation of removal. That's a very specific term of art, which uh, would not apply in this case. But most immigration attorneys would seek a remand. Okay. That'd be the terminology they would do. And it depends on the immigration judge. Some immigration judges are willing to remand at the time of the of the master calendar. They won't necessarily wait for uh, individual. And when I say wait, I mean some judges are backed up two to three years between yeah. the date of the master calendar scheduling hearing and the date of the individual. So judges are aware of this. They don't like scheduling master uh, the scheduling these hearings, scheduling individual hearings three years out. It's just that's what they got to do because their docket is that full. So some judges will remand it. Another option uh, that I've seen work before is ICE will, in some cases, agree with the attorney that, hey, there's this petition before USCIS. USCIS has already adjudicated it. Therefore, let's try to, in some way, fast track this to get an expedited hearing before the judge so that we can do a simple remand procedure, get the ball transferred back across the net to USCIS, get jurisdiction back to USCIS so that USCIS can adjudicate not just the underlying petition, but the change of status. Um, so that's actually, I'm kind of curious to see the level of cooperation between USCIS and immigration courts, because there have been instances in which an ICE attorney will say, you know what, I need to kind of clear my docket. Mm -hmm. I need to get through this backlog. This is this particular case is not really high on my list of priorities. Let's work this out. USCIS is basically going to, at this point, potentially double the court's backlog. I can't imagine that an ICE attorney is going to be particularly pleased. Do you anticipate ICE, the immigration courts, 
and USCIS being on the same page here in terms of their list of priorities? I think we are going to see some conflict in priorities. And I think we're also going to see a lot of variation from area to area, from, say, California doing things differently than Philadelphia does, doing diff things differently than Miami. So you're going to see a lot of regional variation because a lot of this is about individual ICE attorneys. It's about their individual field office director, not just what the priorities are coming out of Washington, but within that specific ICE office, what are the priorities in that office? What are their staffing needs? There's been a hiring freeze for a lot of these offices. A lot of them are probably at this point understaffed, overworked, and have huge dockets. So how does that individual leader in that office decide to advise his team or her team, and how are they going to deal with their backlogs? And there's a lot of discretion. I, I got the memos in front of me, but there's still a ton of discretion even within these memos. There's no has to. There's should, there's may, there's has the authority to. But no policy memo can tell an officer to make a specific decision in a specific case. That is up to the officer's discretion. That's up to the field office director's discretion. So what we can do is we can file extensions up to 180 days before the expiration of status. So 186 months. And or an LCA for an H-1B 180 days in advance of expiration. Exactly. Right. So we have plenty of time, even with these extended processing times, especially when employers choose to take advantage of premium processing, to maximize the chance that we have a decision before the underlying status expires. So that's how we can address it. Use the tools that are at our disposal. Use the options to file early. Use the options to use premium processing where possible. Therefore, maximizing the chance that you're not going to even face this NTA issue. The, the best thing we could do is to avoid it. Because once you're there, it's, it's messy. To avoid that mess, file early. Lisa, let me ask you a question. Does the um, USCIS adjudicators issuance of an NTA prevent us from exercising whatever options we would have normally had in terms of appealing the denial of an H-1B or visa petition. So, so for example, if we were to file a motion to reconsider or a motion to reopen, are we no longer able to do that if the uh, USCIS officer has already referred the case to removal proceedings? So removal proceedings affects the individual, affects the beneficiary. It doesn't affect the petitioner's rights. A petitioner can continue to file, to, to continue to pursue options, be they appeal options, be they refiling, be they motions to reconsider for the, for the petition element, not the status element, but the petition element of the, of the request for status. What we see normally and what is normal in immigration practice is often you see people who are in removal proceedings get married and file I-130s while they're in removal proceedings. That's fine. USCIS has jurisdiction over those underlying petitions and retains a jurisdiction over the petitions while an individual is in removal proceedings. So to answer your question, yes, that you could continue to, to pursue reconsideration, appeals before AAO. However, the impact of that, getting the person back on payroll, getting the person back into the office, that's what's going to be affected. Right. So basically what I think an employer could potentially anticipate is definitely a financial consequence 
um, as a result of this change because you're talking about now an increase in requests to process something via premium processing. Definitely. Um, assuming that the employer wants to cover that cost on behalf of the foreign national. Um, and then also the additional costs associated with challenging a denial by USCIS, you know, taking it up another level in terms of review, uh, and then possibly even refiling a petition, mm-hmm. and then whatever other you know business expenses come as a result of an interruption in an employee's employment authorization, right? I mean, the inability to continue with ongoing work, you know, the inability to work on a project, or the impact that it has on a deadline or deliverables, mm-hmm. right? And it's important to know, though, that we don't know how many cases are going to be affected like this. We don't know how quickly this is going to percolate. First of all, it's not effective until, I think, uh, September 11th. So it's not happening immediately. We still have about a month and a half until this is even a possibility Mm -hmm. or this is even an official policy shift. So we still have some time. And even then, we don't know what the individuals on the ground are going to do. We don't know how long it's going to take if they're going to be able to train all their staff, if USAS will be able to train their staff on issuing NTAs, because I'm pretty sure not every uh, not every USCIS adjudicator has that training, has that knowledge, has that skill set. So there's a lot of other variables at play here. So it, if people are worried about their individual case, if employers are asking, well, what is going to happen to my team? What is going to happen to my employee, what's going to happen to my brother, what's going to happen to my husband, what's going to happen to his job, what's going to happen to my wife, are we going to have to go back to India? We don't know. We can't know right now. It's going to be a case-by-case decision. It's going to be office-by-office. It's going to be officer-by-officer at that low level, which is the black box of USAIS. We don't know what's going on in those levels. So we're just going to have to wait and see what comes out. We're going to have to wait and see and, and prepare but respond on a case-by-case basis. Lisa Lott, you are an eternal optimist. I am. We're going to be prepared. We're going to find options. We're going to be able to help people through these difficulties, help people through this uncertainty. For more content and immigration updates, please visit our website at eiglaw.com. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at EIG underscore law and our Instagram underscore EIG law to join in the conversation. Thank you for listening. See you next time.